The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You should start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth! You're doing that of your own free will. That's what makes this country great, and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive! So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. Reality. Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe, and your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a wrecking Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. Welcome to the Philosophia Parenis live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers on a Wednesday evening, 28 June 2017. We will be discussing Dehomene, lecture number 16, I believe. And we'll be. 17, 17, and we'll be joined momentarily by Brother Andre Maria of the St. Benedict Center. If you've missed any of the previous 16 episodes, you can download any or all of them on my website, not the Crusade Channel website. They're not there. They're on my website at mikechurch.com. And in the menu section at the top of the page, if you click the... uh, Catholicism, and then Philosophy of Penenis, it'll be the top menu option, and uh, you'll see all the previous 15 episodes. Uh, but there's a podcast feed, an RSS feed, that you could subscribe to there. And uh, when we update the file tomorrow morning, it will automatically populate your feed as well. If you want to get the lecture series, and I encourage uh, you to do so, then go to Catholicism.org. And you can find it there if you type a uh, philosophy or philosophia into the search box. Uh, a bunch of files will pop up, and you can select uh, Dahomene. Uh, Brother Andre and Marie would be happy to extend to you the Crusade Channel discount for any and all of your philosophy lecture downloads as well. Just send him an email, bam, B-A-M, at Catholicism.org. Uh, brother, uh, before we get started, first, uh, how are you, and is the cold completely healed? Yes, I, I think it has. So I won't be I won't be um, uh, coughing up a storm. I'm doing well, thank you, Mike. Good. You won't have listeners reaching for a box of hankies, going like, "I just want to dab right there." <laughs> <laughs> 
Brother, I uh, have to call on your your vast knowledge of Catholic saints in history before we get started today. And uh, I'm going to tell you why. My baby girl is doing a one-month internship at a hospital in Genoa, Italy. And, uh, and it's a Catholic hospital, to what's named after a saint. Anyways, uh, I'm not sure uh, if it's still Catholic or not, but they, they didn't ditch the name yet. Um, and uh, today... She went, uh, after her internship shift, she went and spent an hour and a half or so at uh, Santa Maria, uh, Santa di Maria, no, Santa Maria di Castello. And I Googled it, and the first page that came up was one that you wrote about, St. Margaret of Castello. Um. Okay, so the Saint Margaret of Costello, she was a Dominican. Um, she was a Dominican nun in like the thirteenth, thirteenth century or fourteenth, fourteenth century, I think. Okay, she was severely, she was severely handicapped, and her parents had left her as a, uh, they, they they went to a shrine ostensibly to get a miraculous healing, and and they and they left her there. So she was uh, because the father was so horrified that his daughter was was so horribly, um, uh, you know, deformed, and she ended up being sort of taken care of by a very charitable Dominican friar, and she ended up becoming either a third order Dominican uh, sister who lived like a nun or an actual second order Dominican nun. I forget the full story, but she was severely, severely handicapped. So, kind of like uh, Herman Contractus? Yeah, uh, Herman the Cripple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Something, yeah. I mean, so a lot of pro-lifers have taken her. You know, I listened to part of the show, uh, and I heard a little interview with Christian Mm -hmm. uh, when you were were covering the pro-life event down there in Florida. And a lot, because she was a classic sort of unwanted baby, a lot of pro-lifers have uh, tried to sort of adopt her as one of the patronesses uh, of the pro-life cause. So, um, uh, to become a saint, though, she must have had some miracles performed um, at her gravesite or through her... Oh, yeah. I mean, she had miracles galore. I mean, I think she's still just a blessed, but, you know, actually, John Paul II may have actually canonized her, so I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting if she's Blessed Margaret or Saint Margaret of Costello. Um, well, you can't believe Wikipedia, but it says St. Margaret. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I think she has actually been canonized. I mean, I can remember, I can remember when she was, um, just a blessed. <laughs> well, a couple, um, a, a couple of things that I think you'll find noteworthy on, on, on this. Um, she sent me a bunch of, uh, uh photographs and, uh, uh, that basilica or, or cathedral or whatever you wish to call it. Wikipedia again calls it a basilica is absolutely magnificent. I mean, the frescoes on the ceiling and the ceiling is about 60 feet tall are just breathtaking. They're so tall at full zoom on the iPhone. She couldn't get clear enough of pictures. She said she's going to go back with her camera with the, uh, with the NSLR lens so she can uh, take some better photographs. Uh, they also have uh, at the, and I know this has nothing to do with philosophy, but <laughs> I wanted to get the chance to ask an expert about this. They also have um, some uh, uh, paintings and works of art there that uh, I was not familiar with. 
Uh, there is one that is called the, uh, let's see here, she, um, the original Black Christ, the Cristo Moro. Huh. Okay. I'm not familiar with that, but yeah, there are lots of Black Christs. Um, there's one in Mexico, yeah. Well, there's a plaque down at the bottom of this one, and it says that this is the original. And then there is a, um, a 13th century painting of Our Lady that kind of looks like the Black Madonna paintings, uh, like the one that St. Luke looked. Um, and they have a, a, an original that doesn't have any uh, edges around it, uh, and it's mounted in a glass case there as well. Some, some mag magnificent artwork there. And uh, just as a side note, brother, uh, I asked her, I said, well, Margaret's relics have to be there. So she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back in. So she went back in. She said, sure, yeah, Dad, uh, her relics are there at that church. Anyways, I thought I was fascinated by the beauty of the churches in Italy. is always just a subject of, uh, it's one of those good, true, and beautiful th uh, things that has not yet to be destroyed. So I uh, thought yeah. I'd... Yeah, there's a lot of... That. Uh, uh, Christendom is a mag magnificent carcass waiting to be resurrected. Yes, it is. Now, let's resurrect some parts of Christendom. How about resurrecting some Philosophia Padenis? All right. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. So what shall we do tonight with Philosophia Padenis, uh, lecture number 17? So, okay, so on lecture 17, Brother Francis talks a lot about purpose, again. Um, talks a lot about uh, final, final causality and um, spends quite a bit of time on contemplation being uh, part of man's final causality. In fact, his final happiness being found in uh, contemplation, because that's the only um, activity that man can do that's not a means to another end. Everything else that we do is a means to to an end, but contemplation is an end in itself. Um, you know, we frequently use that phrase, and it's an end in itself. But uh, oftentimes, we say it of things that really aren't ends; uh, they're means. Okay. But uh, contemplation is an end in itself. It doesn't. You don't. You don't contemplate for some for some other purpose. And ultimately, uh, man's happiness is, is consists in in contemplation. And Saint Thomas, Brother Francis, will quote Saint Thomas saying that uh, man can only be satisfied by a, a direct vision, a direct contemplation of the first cause. And of course, that that sounds very scholastic, which it is. It, it uh, I mean, it it doesn't exactly sound exciting if you don't know fully if you don't fully appreciate what that means but once you know what it means it's exciting and thrilling and um rather astonishing but there's uh so that is our purpose to achieve our happiness and our happiness is found in contemplation even aristotle knew that and a lot of the pagan greeks knew that and contemplation is something which is an end in itself, and the the end of ends that we have is not just contemplation in this life, but the ultimate contemplation, which involves knowing the first cause as he is in himself. And this, of course, in, in, in Revelation, corresponds to what St. Paul says about, now I know even as I am, uh, now I know in part, I see through a, a mirror darkly, but then, talking about in, in heaven and beatitude, then 
I will know even as I am known. So there's a knowledge that's what we call face-to-face and beatitude. And that's, that's what is our ultimate happiness. That is what our contemplation ultimately consists in. He talks about the perfection of a being, and uh, it talks about the first perfection and the second perfection of the being. The first perfection is its existence, and it's having all of its integral parts to be what it is, that it, that it actually corresponds to its nature. That is the first perfection of a thing. And the second perfection of a thing is that it achieves its purpose, its, its, its end, its operation. Um, so that's, that's a quick, and of course, he actually talks a little bit about Actus Humanus versus Actus Hominis again. I think that uh, we might have to review that. If, anybody, if there's anybody in the chat room that needs a review of Actus Humanus versus Actus Hominis, I'd be happy to, to supply it. But sometimes when I get into that riff, I think that I've, um, I'm repeating something that, I've heard, that people have heard me say over and over and over again, and it's hardly necessary. Um, that's, that's kind of a quick overview. He talks about what intelligible means. Um, he talks about, um, let's see, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just gave, I just, I think I gave a sufficient overview of it. Now, of course, he also read a lengthy, or not a lengthy, but he read a short article that he'd written that sort of later became a classic. And I thought that maybe we could, uh, we could play part of that, um, uh, as part of our discussion, since it is uh, contained in that actual um, in this actual lecture, brother, I wouldn't mind since it's been two weeks and I take poor notes, uh, uh, giving a sixty second and you're on the clock reset of actus hominis and acti- actus humanus. Okay, uh, actus hominis and actus humanus. Humanus. So, um, uh, okay, so very quickly, actus humanus is a human act. Actus hominis is the act of a man. Um, the difference is that an act of a man is something that any any man does, which could be done conceivably by something that's not a man. But an actus humanus, a human act, is something which is uniquely human in the sense that it can't be done by something which is not a man because it involves our, high, our highest faculties of intellect and will. Of course, angels can do that, but that wouldn't be a human act, it'd be an angelic act. Um, so a human act involves the use of the intellect and the will. So if, if, I, um, if I'm digesting my food, if my heart is beating, if I'm uh, uh, running or jumping or something like that, or if I'm, if I'm passively receiving some other motion, I'm being pushed or shoved or f- I'm floating or I'm, s- or I'm falling out the window, all of these things are um, uh, act- actus homini, meaning acts of a man. Not, they're not human acts because other things besides a man, besides a human, can do them. But if I am thinking, if I'm doing math, if I'm reasoning, if I'm uh, doing volitional acts, willing this and willing that, um, and anything that involves cognition or volition, then I am engaging in human acts. And there's the difference. And, and the one has no moral dimension. If I'm falling out of the window, that has no moral dimension, unless, of course, I did the 
stupid human act of wanting to commit suicide and jump out of the window. But if I was pushed or something like that, that that's that's an actus hominis, uh, okay? But if, I mean, an actus hominis, the act of a man. But if I am um, willing it, then it becomes a human act, and every human act has a moral dimension. It's either morally good or morally bad. That's just the way that it works. Every human act has a moral dimension. Okay. Sounds good. Um, where to now? Well, I, okay, so I guess we should go back sort of to the top of the handout and, and just go through it more slowly. I gave a, I gave a rather uh, haphazard uh, overview at the beginning. But Brother Francis starts out saying that happiness is what we all seek. All men seek happiness. This is the um, eudaimonistic view of of uh, ethics. In other words, uh, eudaimonistic comes from Greek words, uh, which all jammed together mean basically happy spirit, happy spirit. So the 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 soul of man seeks its happiness. And uh, the, the Greeks reasoned out, and it's perfectly consistent with, with what our faith teaches us, is that we, we, our end, our purpose, is the achieving of our happiness. And happiness is something that we all seek. The question is, what is our true happiness, instead of some false variety of happiness? Um, Brother Francis points out that one of the major values of wisdom is to teach us what true happiness consists in. Um, uh, and then he goes on this, this interesting little series of comments, and he says, you know, it's easy for people to say that money can't make you happy. He says, but you actually have to think about it and defend that, because there's an awful lot that you can do with money. <laughs> and there are an awful lot of things that you can get with money, that you can buy with money, that you can, um, you know, whether you're buying a product or a service or, or, or influence or power, um, there's an awful lot that you can get with money. So you kind of have to defend that position, which is that money doesn't make you happy. And um, brother quoted some wag who made the remark that, you know, he was going through the entire dictionary and he got all the way up to the letter U and he couldn't find anything that he couldn't buy with money. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, so that, that, that little quip was uh, one of Brother's kind of um, anecdotal or humorous ways of saying that, yeah, it, it's, it's not something that you people are going to see readily. They have to put some thought into it. And then he, and then he kind of takes a shortcut and he says, but one of the greatest proofs of the truth of the axiom that money cannot make you happy is that when you meet people who have lots of it, they're usually very miserable. And of course, uh, we're, we're constantly seeing headlines talking about the, 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 the rich and famous, right? Um, you know, they're on. They're in detox for this. They're in detox for that. They're they're on their fifth marriage, and they're going to get another divorce. I mean, <clears throat> these people are not happy. The vast majority of them. I remember hearing um, some radio news reporters talking about this is a couple of years ago. How um, incredible, and, and and it was very crass the way they they said it. 
but so I, I, I'll try to sort of I'll filter out the crassness. But um, what's that actor's name that, that uh, he's he's um, he was in a movie that I never saw uh, called The Fight Club. He played Tyler Durden in The Fight Club. Brad Pitt. Pitt. Brad Pitt. And he was married to what's her name, Jolie. Um, Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie. Okay, so you know he's like all Mr. Handsome, and she's she's Mrs. Beautiful. And they married, and I heard this this commentator on NPR making the point that, you know, these people must be the absolute happiest people, because here they were glamorous, they had money, and they, had, they were at the tops of their careers, and each, each one of them was married to a spouse that was, uh, you know, attractive. And of course, and, and I'm thinking, wow, that, what, a, what, a, what a shockingly shallow and stupid thing to say. And then it was only a matter of, I think, months later that there were headlines about them divorcing. And, and you know, she says he's violent to the kids and all this stuff. And, and he's got a drinking problem. Okay, so th- obviously the details of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's uh, uh, private life are, are, are unimportant to the argument. The point is that these people whom we virtually revere as demigods aren't happy. And um, these these uh, these worshipful Hollywood actors and athletes and all these other um, people that we put up on pedestals, although they have money, they have fame, they have all the things that they thought would make them happy. And some of them will come out later and say, "I thought I, I thought this would make me happy," and I was actually miserable. You, you hear this stuff all the time. Um, so you've got uh, you've got proof. You've got tons of anecdotal proof sure. of the fact that money doesn't make you happy. And you know, how many you'll hear about people, rich people, converting and saying how you know they wanted to get rid of their money. They, they were not happy. And you have a Beatles song to go along with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. I mean, the hippies and, 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 and their fellow travelers weren't all wrong. I mean, they were often right about a conclusion for the wrong reason. But, um, so, the, uh, so, that's, so that's, one, that's one thing that we need to, to uh, be, be convicted in, that money cannot, cannot make you happy. Um, and one reason we know that money can't make you happy, and, and this is a more philosophical thing, is that money is a means to an end. Only something which is an end can actually make you happy. You don't enjoy the means. You don't say, oh, I've got plenty of means here. I've got plenty of things here with which I can do something. That's not the thing that you enjoy. The thing that you enjoy is what you can do with it or what you can get with it. And of course, since people generally don't get things with money that can actually make them happy, they're not. They're not happy. Um, and, and, you know, turns out that that other axiom is true. The best things in life are free. You know, grace is free. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. The whole concept of grace is that it's a free gift. So it is free. Um now, you might have to pay for knowledge, you might have to pay for education, and this is where there is a valid place for that means to an end. So, you know, th- th- those people who prudently use the things of this world can actually use them as means to their proper end. So we can educate ourselves rightly, we can, we can learn, we can, and of course, we have to have everything that we need by way of food, clothes, and shelter, and all these essentials of life, 
in order to help to facilitate a life of virtue. This is something that's standard Catholic teaching, and this is one of the reasons that the Church has a social teaching that says, you know, you can't just disenfranchise people because people need to have whether whether it's whether it's communism or or um, a sort of a ruthless um, capitalism. You you have to have a, a society where people can eke out a living and make a um, uh, have all those things that they need to provide for themselves. A father should be able to provide for his family so that they're not destitute and so that they can. But 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 why? This is part of the church's teaching, and it's so unknown. But the popes have taught this consistently ever since there was a, a social teaching. A man has to be able to support himself and his family on what he earns in order that he might live a life of virtue. Because if he can't support his family, he'll have to resort to things like stealing. And that's no good, right? Right. So the, the, uh, the, 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 the Catholic teaching on a just wage, for instance, and just prices and all of these principles of, of, of true, true social justice— that have been taught consistently by the popes of the last couple of hundred years, um, ever since the Industrial Revolution and things like that, came in and, and complicated modern life, and modern economy became a reality. Um, all, the popes have taught that a man needs to be able to support himself and his family in order to live a life of virtue. But that does not imply that money is, is an end in itself and that money can make you happy. It's only a means to an end. But only something which bears the character of an end can actually make you happy. He also says about, about health. Health, health. I mean, certain things are an end, but they also stand as a means to a further end. Huh? And he, he talks about there would be no medicine. There would be no need for uh, healthy foods and things like that if you didn't have the purpose, the purpose being health. So health stands in its own field sort of as a purpose. Now, it's not the ultimate purpose, but it is a purpose. And this is how you illustrate a purpose from a means. This is how you, this is how you distinguish an end from a means. Brother says, you, he says, nobody asks the question, health for what? He said, they do ask a question, medicine for what? Medicine has its purpose, ostensibly. I mean, of course, it's really its real purpose is to make pharmaceutical companies filthy rich. But the the real medicine, the real value of good medicine, is to restore the ill to health. And there, health has the character of an end, but it's not an ultimate end. Huh? The ultimate end is to is to have our finality in. In beatitude, in in, in 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 a life of contemplation, but the value of health is that it allows you, it affords you the ability to have a certain measure of contemplation even on this earth. You can learn truth, you can know truth, you can consider truth without being distracted by all the things that weigh you down, thanks to poor health. So you see how something can be an end. Yet at the same time, be a means to a greater end. Yes. Okay. Um, so, but ultimately, it's contemplation that makes us happy. Um, but brother says simply to say that it does doesn't convince anybody. They need to know about it. They need to experience it. 
And only if you experience it can you have an appreciation of what it is and what, what is the point uh, that what is the point of 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 our of our existence? And he also makes the point that contemplation isn't pure. He says it's active, not passive. Now, I know that if I, if if I were there to t ask brother a question in the class, he would clarify that because um, there is technically something called active contemplation and there's something called passive contemplation. The more contemplative the experience, the more passive somebody is. I think when he says passive. When he says it's not passive, he mean he, he what he means is it's not some kind of sheer nirvana. So you know what nirvana, the, which is sort of the Hindu experience of, of it's the closest thing that they've got to our concept of beatitude. But nirvana means annihilation, and we don't believe that annihilation is happiness. <laughs> For for the for the in these in these false pantheistic systems of of religion and philosophy, one achieves his his bliss by being completely and entirely uh, assumed into uh, assimilated into the oneness of the universe by being annihilated by by having his individuality his personality completely absorbed. Sort of like the Borg. Um, it's not yeah. at assimilated, all not absorbed. Conception. Assimilated, not absorbed. The Borg assimilates. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the Borg assimilates, but 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 Nirvana. I mean, it, it completely. But it, it assimilates, but you lose your identity. You become just a cog in a wheel of a greater machine. You become a Borg. Now, maybe that's not really pantheistic, but it's close enough to it. Um, uh, in in true pantheism, you become entirely annihilated, and you just join the oneness of the cosmos. So contemplation isn't that. You don't lose yourself. You, I mean, you could say you lose yourself in a poetic sense, but yourself exists. Your your in fact, yourself even more exists, and as much as it's perfected, it's achieved its end. But in true con in true contemplation. The, the the there is an awareness there is a there is a cognition there is a volition there is knowing there is loving even the more passive it becomes there is still uh, activity in the intellect and activity in the will and there there is uh, in the mystics describe it uh, the way that the mystics describe it we know that there's a, a, a minimal of what we would call normal activity but they're aware of what's happening. So there's a still, still, a, still a cognition, there's still a volition that's happening in the intellect and in the will. Um, but So that's, I think, what Brother Francis is getting to when he says that contemplation is active and not passive. But in fact, compared to, say, didactic reasoning, where you're reasoning from point to point, and you're meditating on something, meditation is something far more active. It's your mind, your soul, actively doing things. Contemplation can only be called contemplation if there is some aspect of passiveness to it. And Brother Francis, by the way, knew that perfectly well. I mean, he and I talked about this, so I know very well that that's what he thinks. Um, actually, we have some questions in the in, in, in the room, don't oh. we? Yeah, we do. Before we do that, let's uh, uh, set up the latest episode of Reconquest that's going to broadcast tonight. 
This is the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. I am your host and moderator, Mike Church. You are listening to the melodic voice of Brother Andre Marie of the uh, Order of the Immaculate Slaves, uh, Slaves of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the MICM of Richmond, New Hampshire, and the St. Benedict Center. You can find Brother Hiding in plain sight via email. He's BAM, B-A-M, at Catholicism.org. He is brother underscore Andre on Twitter and on Facebook. He is brother Andre Marie. And I encourage all of you to follow brother and his Reconquest radio show, which is up to, see, I've been missing for a week now, so I'm going to mess this up. 81 episodes, brother? 82. 82, uh, episode number 82. And tonight is 82, and it's called uh, The Church in the Spanish Empire. And I'm interviewing. Um, one of the favorite guests of our listeners, which is Dr. Alexander Wilhelmson. And you've had him on before, I assume. Uh, yeah, her. Her. Dr. Alexandra Wilhelmson. She's, she's that lady, lady professor from the University of Dallas who's a, a specialist in, in Spanish history. And um, she's written, she's a published author, uh, both in English and Spanish. Um, and, uh, she's, uh, she's, she's trying to get, she's just retired from the University of Dallas after 46 years of teaching there. And she's trying to get a textbook on Spanish history published that she's written. Um, but she's, it, it, so we're talking about the church in the Spanish empire, mostly, mostly in the new world here. So it was, it was great, a great, a fun, very fun conversation. And it took, and it, and it, and the, and the 55 minutes went by way too fast. So we didn't cover anywhere near what we wanted to. Isn't that the way it always happens? Yeah, it is. Um, so that just means we have to have her back. <laughs> well, we'll look forward to episode number 82. And if you've missed any of the previous 81 episodes, they're all available on our website at crusadechannel.com. And you can get complete rundowns from each episode if you go to Brothers' site, Reconquest.net. And uh, all of that is available to you as a to, uh, to download as a Founders Pass member. Um, and you can find out all about that at CrusadeChannel.com. Um, you want to get to questions now, or do you want me to play a bro Brothers clip? It's about 10 minutes long. Well, wh wh why, don't we, uh, why don't we get to the questions, Mike? Let's and do then, that. Because uh, I don't think there'll be... So Jazzville asks, um, when did contemplation move from being considered active, now passive? Uh, was that also in the Enlightenment? Well, uh, um, I, it's hard to say because when you, when, you, when you look at the when you look at what the great when you look at what the great uh, scholastics say about the subject, they actually speak of active contemplation and passive contemplation. Both concepts are actually uh, legitimate. Um, but I mean, in the in the era of the Enlightenment and in mo and in modern times, there's a complete uh, rejection of the of the value of what is passive. So um, I think I think what is uh, activity is is actually exalted over passiveness. I think what Brother's getting to the critique that he's actually getting to is people have a mistaken notion of what contemplation consists in and they associate it with these false Eastern pantheistic notions of, of annihilation where there is no activity. It's just complete, completely being subsumed into the, into the great monad of, of being. Um, Craig Silverman asks, would that be considered tra transubstantiation brother? <laughs> but uh, you mean like I, Craig, I think you were talking about, 
He must have asked that when I was talking about annihilation and being subsumed. Um, yeah, you, if, you, if you were annihilated and subsumed into some greater s substance in the universe, yeah, that would be something like transubstantiation. You'd be losing your, your substance. Um, but of course, these folks generally don't think in scholastic terms. So any imposition of that on their thinking would be kind of artificial on our part. Um, okay, so everything else. All right, I think those are those are the only questions we had. Well, uh, you're doing such a good job of explaining these things, brother. Um, you're uh, you're like the Maytag refrigerator uh, washing machine repairman. <laughs> yeah, just sitting here all day doing nothing because <laughs> things aren't broken. Uh, I have a question that's uh, that's uh, not related, and it came up on the show today, and that is. Um, prime matter, this goes all the way back to our cosmology course way back in the day. Prime matter cannot be destroyed, correct? No, it can't. Okay. It can't. Prime matter doesn't exist as such. I mean, God didn't create prime matter as such. Right, in, right. In, in the original creation, he created things, and all things that are material things have prime matter. But, yeah. But it cannot be destroyed, no. Okay, so a piece and of... Pri and prime matter, by the way, at least as far as material things go, prime matter is pure potency. It's the closest you can get to pure potency, whereas um, whereas God is pure act. So he's the he, God is the farthest thing away from prime matter. So it reminds me of the 1980s uh, dance song with the Leonard Nimoy voiceover, Pure Energy. Pure energy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I know what you're talking you about. You know the song. He meant to say pure potency, but he said pure energy. Pure energy. Yeah, uh, well, many of the many of these pantheistic religions, Brother Francis and I were, 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 I was showing him something, and I won't go into the details because it's way too complicated, but I was showing him something I was reading in a, in a book about St. Francis Xavier evangelizing the Japanese, and one of the names that they had for God was, I think, Dainichi. And what Dainichi uh, means, and St. Francis Xavier, who innocently just thought that that name meant God, was going around, pray, pray, you know, talking about the glories and the mercies of Dainichi. Well, later Jesuit missionaries found out that the, con the word itself was so impregnated with pantheistic concepts, they couldn't use it and they had to... They, they couldn't find any word in the Japanese language that could be used for the Christian God. So they simply imported the Latin word Deus. So the Japanese were using the word deus in Japanese to worship God. It's, of course, a Latin word for God. Right. But Dainichi meant, they figured it out. It meant something like prime matter, huh. pure potency. And when you think about that, it's kind of like the religion of George Lucas. It's, it's the force. The force isn't good. The force isn't bad. It's just this inert um, potency in the universe, which if you had, you know, if you were sort of an ascended master, either good, you know, a Jedi or bad, a Sith Lord, you could tap into this pure potency and use it. But it's not good and it's not bad, right? There's no moral element at all to it. And that's exactly what pantheistic religion has at its core. It's not a matter of good and evil. It's, it's, um, it, it's ama It's actually quite amazing how, how closely George Lucas followed a sort of pantheistic religiosity in, in his notion of the force, but it's pure potency, and that's what the Japanese notion of God was. 
that uh, the Jesuits had to actually stop using that word. So Brother Francis pointed out to me, he said, that's a perfectly diabolical inversion when you think about it, because God is pure act. And they've made God into the very opposite of what he is, which is, pu- which is pure potency. Uh, and, and the reason uh, that this came up was um, when something changes substantial form. When you burn a piece of wood, it turns into ashes. That the matter that made up the the wood is still there; it hasn't been destroyed. It's just been it's been altered. Its 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 order has been altered, or uh, its form rather has been altered. And uh, this came up because we were talking about how uh, demons can glom on to inanimate. Because they're called t- contact objects, and some people think that if you just throw a contact object in a fire, that you got rid of the demon. Well, maybe if you burn it and the ashes disperse into the wind, maybe. But uh, because the matter is still there, that uh, w- w- with it being somewhat intact, then it could be that the, the demon could then still be uh, still be lurking. And I know when I said prime matter today, I went, "Oh no, I don't fully grasp the concept." It's like one of the <laughs> mysteries of the faith. I-, I caught myself and I went. And, and uh, Josh Will just happened to be in mass because somebody was just firing away machine gun style in the chat room. What's prime matter? What are you talking about? I've never heard of prime matter. You need to, you need to clarify this. And I was like, oh, no, I didn't mean to say it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, um, it didn't make me happy, brother. Let me put it to you that way. Yeah, it, it, is, it, is, an, it is a mystery how both... The good angels and the bad angels uh, interface with uh, matter and 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 space, for that matter, which sure. is of course a spatial, uh, a material concept. Space being um, um, an expression of, of a relation that exists between material things. But uh, but but we know for a fact that they do. I mean, when our Lord, where, where our Lord was tempted in the agony in the garden, or where he suffered, I should say, in the agony in the garden. That place in the in the Valley of Kedron was known to be in the early, in the Old Testament history a place that was a dumping ground for uh, idols. When 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 the temple, when the Old Testament temple had been desecrated, which it was multiple times, by um, having including at times by the Jews themselves who became unfaithful, and they put uh, these demonic uh, idols in the temple. Whenever you'd have a good print, a good uh, king or a good priest come and cleanse the temple, they would take these objects and cast them where? Well, there's a valley very near the temple. In fact, in fact, all the blood and gore from the sacrifices at the very time that the Lord suffered there, the the, the 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 torrent of Kedron was red with blood coming down from the altar where the Paschal lambs were being sacrificed. But that same place was like a burial ground. For all of this demonic, idolatrous refuse that had been cleansed from the temple, and a lot of commentators say it because of this, it was a kind of a stomping ground for demons. And so there's a lot of speculation, and I think you'll read about it. You, 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 you read um, was it Anna Catherine Emmerich? There's all I kinds did. of demonic I did. activity in our Lord's agony in the garden. So this is a, this was a literal haunt for demons where he was. Being tempted, so you talk about um, demons, you know, sort of clinging on to material things. That that's a fact. Yeah, uh, it's just interesting. I'll give you another one that has very little to do with Dahomey and a lot to do with philosophy of Pedenis, 
And that's his story that uh, all the Life on Other Planets crowd has uh, adopted as the greatest story since uh, creation. And that is that this thing called the Kepler telescope has allegedly identified these uh, planetary masses that are 30 million light years away. If you can even fathom that kind of a distance. And uh, that this uh, thing called uh, this uh, device called the Kepler telescope uh, actually is sitting out there in what they don't even know what it is, brother. You mentioned space. They call it space, but to make Einstein's equations work, they tried to call it dark matter. Then they call, or they called it the ether. Then they call it dark matter. I don't even know what they call it today. But the fascinating thing about the scam, about the hoax is that this thing is sitting out there beyond the orbital gravitational pull of this planet. Um, how is it remaining steady and able to track what all the Big Bang theorists tell us is a moving object? That's that star 30 million miles away, we're told, we're instructed, is moving. So uh, I, I got to play a little Philosophia Pedentis with that and had, uh, had some fun at that uh, and was very thankful that I paid attention in cosmology. Good. Yeah, a lot, a lot of what passes for um, science today is, uh, I, I think, science fiction. <laughs> well, I mean, you see where I'm going with that. I mean, to, me, to me, that is science fiction. I mean, it, it's fascinating to think about. There's no scientific basis for it. Uh, but they present it as it is. Uh, and then uh, that also led me, and I said, wait a minute, Brother did a show on this one time when he first started with Hugh Owen. So then I went and found, okay, why is this important to these people, Brother? It's important because they must end the creation narrative. This whole search for extraterrestrial life is to repeal the book of Genesis. And when they repeal Genesis, then they're going to say, well, the Catholic Church has been wrong to defend creation, and therefore they're wrong about everything else. So we know what the end result of this is, and I'm just shocked that more Catholics don't get that. And they don't understand, look, don't play this game with these guys looking for little green men, because their, motive, their motives are diabolical. Yeah, well... They're, they're, they've all been lobotomized by what Brother Francis used to call the, the Galileo complex. You know, the church has been... Somebody crammed this down my throat the other day when... Uh, oh, we were talking about, we were talking about a homosexuality. Uh, I got in an argument with somebody talking about um, the, the moral probity or lack thereof of homosexuality and homosexual acts. And... Um, the person just threw out completely out of the blue, which is the only place these arguments come from. Um, well, the church has been wrong before. Look at Galileo. So, I mean, <laughs> it's one of those things, well, where do you begin? You know, <laughs> Because the, 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 the Galileo button is like the, you know, that, that, that's that. Oh, it's to get out of jail free card. That's the destruction that yeah. they've got. Because they've all been taught in school and they've all, that, that the Catholic Church is wrong because of Galileo. And they don't know squat about what happened with nope. Galileo. And they, and they, they also, don't, they don't realize that most, that all scientists today say that Galileo was wrong about any number of different various things but not only that brother but galileo was i, I think it was pope pius v at the time or I, I, I somewhere around there he was an invited guest he was living the life of uh, he, he was living the gilded life at the vatican he was living in in, in one of the most palatial suites that's there you know they make yeah. it sounds like he was rapunzel locked up in a 120 foot tall uh, tower with one little tiny window and they shoved some bread and water underneath the door and he shriveled up to nothing and almost died 
Yeah, the whole the whole the whole thing's absurd. They don't they don't know the history of the Galileo case yet. They wax eloquent on. Or, actually, they don't wax eloquent on. They just know one word: no. Galileo. They wax imbecilic on it. <laughs> <laughs> All they know is a line from a Queen song, and they think that that'll that that'll slay you. <laughs> <laughs> let's get let's get back to. Philosophia Perennis for, for a minute, although I think this all was about uh, Philosophia uh, Perennis. Uh, I was kind of making some notes during the first segment, um, and I might have missed while I was writing. Uh, we got to both first and second perfections? Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure, because uh, some people uh, may have uh, come in later, they may have been making... Yeah, the, the first perfection is the thing's existence. Uh, that that it that it is you know it has an existence that it is it's integral to its own nature okay so it's true to its nature of what it is whether it's a plant or a bird or a duck or a human the second perfection of a thing is its operation and as an op as an operation um, as 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 operating as being active it's supposed to achieve its purpose so. Mm -hmm. A man, man can be said to be perfected when he's an integral man, when he has all of his stuff that constitutes him as a man. Um, yet his his uh, second perfection is is found in his operations, in achieving some excellence in uh, as a man, especially as regards his final purpose. And of course, the final purpose is uh, what is supposed to drive men. Uh, you know, it's funny, David Simpson and I had lunch today, and we were talking about this, uh, about uh, what, what it is that drives men and women to do things today. And this came up because I was showing in the pictures of Santa de Maria Castello, uh, from, that my daughter took. And I said, you know, she's seen the beauty that uh, the age of faith created. And it came out, he and I were talking about it. I said, well, you know, they had Ferraris back then. They had guys that were Maseratis. Probably had actually Ferraris and Maseratis. And uh, na name your famous Italian rich person. Uh, they didn't buy sports cars or sports horses. They took their money. They hired artisans. And they built magnificent churches. Many of them uh, that they never actually got to, to see completed while they were alive. I mean, what kind of a testament to what kind of a what, what kind of a faith drives the people to do that? Yeah, I'll go ahead and invest in the project, even though I'll never live to see it completed. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, 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 they thought a little bit differently. Their values were living. Even the bad ones, even the bad ones, their their, their worldview was much better than our own worldview. Sure. So um, I think we need to quote St. Thomas here. I don't, when I gave that quick summary at the beginning, I didn't quote this. Okay. St. Thomas says, therefore, to know God by an act of understanding is the last end of every intellectual substance. To know God by an act of understanding is the last end of every intellectual substance. Now, intellectual substances are both men and angels, both men and angels. So we, we share that end. With the angelic nature, so that that is our ultimate happiness. That's what our ultimate happiness consists in. Um, and he says also related to that, therefore it is required for the perfection of beatitude. For, excuse me. Therefore it is required for the perfect beatitude that the intellect attains the very essence of the first cause. Mm. 
So it's not just a, we, we we can we can you know all men desire to know, and we desire to know causes, but you know, think of the little child. You know, mommy, what what what, what, what what's that? It's a zebra. Why is it why is it got stripes? Well, because of the you know you just give up some answer and make some answer up. Um, they ask why 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 or where did that come from? Where did that come from? Who made that? Who made that? And who made that? And the ultimate answer is God. And then, as Brother Francis pointed out, they'll they'll ask, sometimes say, "Well, who made God?" Well, that's the magic. I mean, God didn't. God is the uncreated Creator. He's the He's the unmade Maker. And um, to know that cause, you can see it in a child. He wants to know that cause. He asks constantly, "Why? Why? Why?" And when he's asking that, he's getting to purpose. And when you talk about purpose, you are talking about causality. In fact, when you talk about purpose, when you ask the question why, you're getting to, to ultimate causes. You're getting to the, the, the final cause. Literally, the, what, what Aristotle calls the final cause is the answer to the question why. It's the purpose, right? So um, that question, every, Brother Francis says a lot. All children are naturally philosophers because they ask, they're seeking wisdom. They're asking the questions. And it's only around adolescence when other things come into their mind, when they, when they start, you know, getting more cynical. But, uh, but and this is why Jesus says that, that uh, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you have to keep asking those questions and seeking those ultimate answers. And uh, the last, the final cause of man is knowledge of God in, in beatitude. So it's required for the perfect beatitude that the intellect attains the very essence of the first cause. Not knowing, not just knowing that God created everything, not just knowing a little bit about him, uh, not just seeing his effects, but knowing the cause in himself and seeing him in himself. And Brother talks about vision. He says, you know, we have this confusion as to what the beatific vision means. He said, vision is actually, it's the highest kind of relationship that you can have because there's a unity that's established between the, the, the seer and the thing being seen. It's not just something that you're admiring from a distance in the beatific vision. It's a knowledge, and it's an intimate knowledge, and this is why St. Paul could say of it, then I will know even as I am known. So that is our, that is our perfect beatitude, and it's found in our intellect. It's experienced in the intellect, and it overflows into the will when the will loves that final good, that final cause, that that first cause of all things, and that final cause of his own beatitude. In other words, let me translate that for all you listening. Uh, I have a lot of, of spirit work left to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to get out of the. I have to. I have to escape the, or, or work my way, or, or uh, I shouldn't say, I can't do anything. Uh, be assisted in my way out of the purgative uh, state, brother. Uh, brother, we have just about a minute left, and I was just going to throw in that I talked about this one day last week, and I it was an early hour, so I knew you weren't listening, uh, so you probably didn't hear it. But I can't remember how it came up, but I, I, I was talking about some uh, some individuals who were pagans or apostates or whatever, and, 
and they put all their eggs into the basket of he that has the most toys at the end of the at the end of the uh, at the end of life wins. And as Joseph Pierce says, no, he that has a, a, the the most toys in his basket at the end of life is dead. That's <laughs> the end. Uh, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else. And uh, I, I know it had something to do with cosmology, but my my statement wasn't. I meant to 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 bring it up to you and tell you that. Uh, I had actually been able to put cosmology and what I learned the philosophy of Podinus to, to good use was, uh, and we only have 20 seconds, the ultimate purpose of uh, the earth and why it's here, it was created for man. And brother, brother talks about it all the time. It's, it's not here for the animals. It's not here to preserve the water. It's here for man. And that's all the time we have tonight. We end on a happy note. Stay tuned for Reconquest. Coming up next here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Little Radio Size Speakers. Oh.